I really want to reflect what is going on in the news at the moment, and at the same time uh, bring the next part of Nehemiah and they intertwine. When we look back over history and we look back over conflicts, when we look back into our own experiences and our own lives, we are able to see that there are some factors that cause conflict. And one of the major factors is untruth. Now that can be in different shapes and sizes. It can be deliberately being misled, where peoples and nations have been manipulated and told lies and misled. It can be in our personal relationships that people have lied. But sometimes it's not that there has been a deliberate intention to tell untruth, but just that things have, people have got things wrong and what they believed to be true wasn't true. So in our national the news, in our personal relationships, how do we know what voice to trust? How do we know what is true? How do we know which leaders are reliable? How do we know which religious leaders are reliable? How do we know on social media, on the internet, on Twitter, on uh, TikTok, whatever it is, how do we know that that message, that truth, that news site, that website, that testimony, that story, how do we ever know whether it's true or not? And how do we know whether the beliefs and values that we hold within are true? Because arguably one of the greatest dangers that we face is to be misled or for others to be misled about us. So we're going to look at Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, on the face of it, is a book of anger and fear. If you've been with us over the weeks, I've been trundling my way through uh, when it's my turn to preach. But it's also a book of peace. There is a lot of anger, there is a lot of hatred, but there is no violence. There is a lot of provocation, but there is no war. And we see in Nehemiah some of the causes of war. We see the resentment and aggression and ridicule and scapegoating of a particular people group. We see threats of attack, but there is no war. So what can we learn? What voice do we learn? We're going to look at a story from Nehemiah about trying to work out who is telling the truth. Just a little recap for those of you who are new tonight, uh, just an explanation. The book of Nehemiah was written uh, several hundred years before Jesus. It's in a time when the, the city of Jerusalem is in ruins. The temple has been rebuilt, but the external walls haven't. The consequence of that is that the city is, is vulnerable. It has no defenses. So thieves and robbers and oppressors come in and out by night by day, they enslave, they steal. And Nehemiah is a slave, but he's not a slave in Jerusalem. He's a slave hundreds of miles away in the emperor Artaxerxes' uh, royal palace. And he hears of what has gone on in Jerusalem. He's never lived in Jerusalem. That's his ancestral home, but probably his grandparents came from there, but he's never lived there. But he is moved, and he believes that God is leading him to go 
and rebuild the walls. So he sets off and he finds a dispirited and a broken people and he encourages them by this miraculous story of how he got there, of how the emperor had let him go and they begin to build the wall. But this really, really upsets and annoys the governor of the area, Sambala, who um, becomes increasingly angry with them. And Nehemiah's response is to bring Nehemiah's anger not to Sambala, but to God and he prays to God uh, uh, to deal with Sambala and he prays that God would act on his behalf and what we'll see is that whenever Nehemiah prays and it says a lot in the book that he prays it seems that things get worse and we're tempted to think prayer isn't working because everything is kind of topsy-turvy Nehemiah prays they carry on building and then uh, Sambala gets more angry and there's more opposition and there's more fear and the last time we looked at this we talked about the fact that he prays and does something. He prays and he uh, posts the guard. He decides that everyone's going to have a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. And he, we talked about the importance of not just praying, but doing something, and not just doing something, but praying, and the partnership of those things. Nevertheless, even though all is prayer, they're still getting discouraged. And uh, there is, seems that there is an attack imminent. There is forces building. At any moment, Sambala's army is going to attack the people who are building the wall. And so Nehemiah has these guards. What we discover is that the very act of posting the guards persuades Sambala not to attack. And there is no battle. There is no fight. Nehemiah never attacks. He takes his anger to God and he tells people to be ready, but he never is aggressive. And this frustrates Sambala. Now, we are going to jump a chapter because uh, I wanted this chapter six for tonight. It really fitted in with Remembrance Sunday. So next time I'm preaching, I'll go back and do chapter five. So we're going to pick it up. The walls are nearly finished. He says, I'd rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time, I have not set the doors in the gates. So he hadn't uh, finished the snagging. He'd done most of the job, but there was a few bits uh, that... um, that hadn't been done. Isn't that the way? We think we've finished, and then somebody says, yeah, but you haven't taken that bit off, or we ride that bit. Anyway, hasn't quite finished. And Sambala has heard. And he sends a message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages. What can be more pleasant than that? chance for reconciliation, a chance for things to be built together. He invites him to come. But Nehemiah says they were scheming to harm me. So how has he decided that this voice is a bad voice to listen to? How has he decided that this message, this post, isn't truthful? We're going to come back to that. I sent messages to them with the reply, I am carrying out a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message. The pressure is building. Come and meet us. Come and meet us. Four times they send the same message. And each time Nehemiah says, I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sambala sent his aide to me with the same message. And in his hand was an unsealed letter in which it was written, it is reported among the nations and 
Geshem says it is true. People are talking about you, Nehemiah. Others are saying, one of my least favorite phrases in church life, when somebody says, people are saying, it kind of puts the pressure on you. Who are these unknown people? Here it's Geshem. Others are saying, and this is what they're saying, that you and the Judeans are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you're about to become their king. Now, why does that matter? He is the slave of Artaxerxes, the supreme king. He has been given permission by Artaxerxes to come and build the wall. Artaxerxes is far more powerful. This is his empire. This is a small part of his empire. Jerusalem is a tiny little place. If Nehemiah was about to proclaim himself king, all the forces of Artaxerxes would be down on him like a sledgehammer, and he would be dead before he woke up the next morning. So this is quite an important accusation, because Sambalat is Artaxerxes' representative. And he's trying to say, although Nehemiah has come from Artaxerxes, he's saying, we know and we think that you are plotting to be king. So how is Nehemiah going to defend himself from this accusation? This voice, come and meet with thee. Now this is the report, and it will get back to the king which is very frightening. So Nehemiah has got to decide whether I believe, whether he believes Sambala and goes to meet with him. And today and in previous weeks, I want to draw your attention to some of the things that Sambala has said that lead Nehemiah to the conclusion that Sambala is not good. And these are things that two and a half thousand years later, we have seen in our world, in our lifetimes, and even in the last few weeks. So what does Sambada's track record of speech? He labels a particular people group. It says that he began to ridicule the Jews. When we started this story, we said that it may be that he was himself a Jew. We're not totally sure, but he certainly has grouped these people together. He's decided there is a whole people and they're all the same. And they're all to be made fun of. And one of the things that we need to be aware of is when there is a group called the other, they. They may be a people. They may be a race. They may be a language. And we decide that they have all one characteristic, and it's negative. That's what Sambala does. And he ridicules and he belittles this other labelled group. What are those feeble Jews saying? He needs for his own security, for his own well-being, to have a group of people that he considers beneath him, that he wants to put down. But not only does he want to put them down, but he wants others to join with him. And these are things that we looked at before. It says, in the presence of the associates and the army, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? He wants to get other people on his side. He wants to put it out there. These people are up to no good. They're useless. They're weak. They're feeble. And he's stoking up anger. And we are all being drawn in 
by different groups that want us to be angry at another group. We are hearing so many voices of these people, these people. And Sambala has gone around and made sure that his army doesn't like the Jews. Now, it could be any people group. This isn't about one side or the other, whether it's Russians or Ukrainians, whether it's uh, Palestinians or whether it's uh, Israelis, whether it's people of Yemen or the people of Sudan. It could be any group. In this particular story, it happens to be the Jews. And then he creates a sense of isolation. He says to Nehemiah, you're on your own. Other, other people are talking about you. I believe this is called gaslighting. I've only recently, I've heard that phrase for years and never understood what it meant. And uh, somebody explained to me what it means. I'm not sure I could explain it to you. But it's to do with creating an impression that we are vulnerable. And it's not as we, as we think. And we get more and more frightened because a world is being shaped around us that is untrue. And Sambala is creating this for Nehemiah and the people who are rebuilding the wall. And he's judged them. He's attributed false motives. You are plotting to revolt. And how many times do we hear, this is what they are. This is what they do. And he threatens danger if we don't act. He says, look, the report will get back to the king. If you don't do what I say, if you don't join in, everything will go wrong. And what happens in conflict and war is when we scapegoat a group, whether it's Jews, whether it's Muslims, whether it's the Irish, whether it's the English, When we scapegoat, we try and create a sense of, if you don't do what I say, you're in danger. And we see that from leaders all over the world. Whether it's Republicans and Democrats, whether it's right or left. And he seems to be saying that if we could just destroy these people who are building the wall, everything will be okay. We will kill them and put an end to this work. And we are living in a world where certain nations and peoples and leaders are trying to say the way to bring about peace is to destroy the enemy. And Jesus has commanded us to be peacemakers, to be people who make peace. And Sambalar is saying, violence will make peace. I want to show you a cartoon. Happens to be about the Middle East conflict. It could be about any conflict.
And the reality is that violence does not create peace, it creates resentment. We've seen that in Northern Ireland. We've seen that in every conflict. That the only way to make for peace is to do something completely different and radical, which is the language and message of Jesus, of Martin Luther King and of others, that we bring peace. My mom was of a generation, she was a teenager during the Second World War and it was important to her and to her generation that there would never be a war in Europe again. And so what did they do? They wanted to make friends. My mum had a German pen pal she wrote to for years and got to meet in later life. It was important to her to build friends. That was the basis of the European Union. To create peace, you have to transform an enemy to a friend. Because if we think that killing an enemy creates peace, it doesn't. It creates a bigger group of people who resent that murder. And Sam Bala is saying to Nehemiah, trust me and it will, everything will be okay. He says, come on, we'll meet together. It'll all be fine. We'll sort this whole thing out. And there are leaders who will say, come on, just do what I say. Everything will be okay. I have a plan. I have a plan. Just let me fulfill my plan. And Nehemiah said to him, nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making up it up out of your head. He confronts Sambala and he refuses to accept the invitation. He says, you're making it up. It is not true. He speaks the truth. He has decided that this voice is not trustworthy. They were trying to frighten us. He recognizes what the real danger is. They are trying to frighten us. Their hands will, thinking that their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. Nehemiah is recognizing that all of this is a tactic to stop him doing what God has called him to do. What God has called him to do is to rebuild the wall. God has not called him to have a war with Sambala. He's not called him to have civil war. He has not called him to go and, and fight this guy. He's called him simply to build the wall. And, and, and his job is to build the wall and forget everything else. And we have often used this phrase um, because it's a crucial phrase. The main thing is to keep the main thing. And what often happens in conflict is we lose sight of the main thing and we go off on a tangent because we're angry, because we're hurt, because we're being lied about, because we've been misunderstood. And the good news is that the Bible is abundantly and fundamentally and totally clear what the main thing is. If you have the faith that can move mountains but do not have love, Paul says we're nothing. Jesus commands it. And I know I say this so often, but it is so radical that he gives a commandment. They thought it was blasphemous because only Moses could reveal the commandments of God. And there are 10 of them. It was done. It was finished. And Jesus says, I've got a new commandment. What are you saying? I am God and I am telling you now what you must do. No negotiation. This is what you must do. A new command I give you. What is it? To love one another. To love as I have loved you. He says, I, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, 
You've read the Old Testament. You think it teaches retribution is good. I'm telling you now, turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Love your neighbor and pray for your enemies. And so Nehemiah prays, strengthen my hands. I need to stay on the main thing. I'm not going to be deflected. I'm not going to be deflected by anger. I'm going to do what God has asked of me. And there is a new threat. And one day I went to the house of Shema, the son of somebody, of these people, and let us meet in the house of God inside the temple. Let us close the temple doors because some people are coming to kill you. Well, that's fine. That's great. The problem is that the inner court of the temple was a symbol of God's holiness and that no one could just walk in there because it would imply that they were without sin and that only the priest, after a whole load of ceremonies, could go in there. Nehemiah, if he was to walk in there, he would be saying, you know, I'm really actually God or I'm really important. It was a plausible encouragement. It was a good idea. Go in, safe place. Sambala will never follow you into that place. And Nehemiah resists the temptation to presume that he has special rights. There is a temptation now again being laid in front of Nehemiah. Listen to this voice, this godly voice, this prophetic voice. He says, I realized that God had not sent him, that he had prophesied against me. Are we able to recognize those who would claim to be speaking the words of God? And it sounds sensible. It sounds good. Go into the temple, Nehemiah. But he says he'd been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this. And what we learn, and Nehemiah is reminding us, is that God does not encourage us to do the wrong thing, even for the right reasons. The end never justifies the means. Because it is the way we do things that matter. Because the main thing is to keep the main thing, and the main thing is to love. And if we abandon love in order to somehow achieve something which we think is more important, we've lost it. Because the command was to love. The command was not to win. So what voices do we trust when we see something on our phones? Are there any things we can do to work out whether it's a voice of Sambala, it's a, it's a deceitful, manipulative voice? When we listen to leaders and we listen in church to Christians, when we follow Christians on YouTube, how do we know who to trust? Fundamentally, we trust the voices of love and compassion for our neighbor. And that any voice that is, we feel within us, it's making us feel more angry towards somebody else, it is a voice to not listen to. We know from the algorithms of how the internet works that many of the sites want advertising. They want us to stay on their site. They want us to keep clicking, and they want us uh, so that they can get advertising revenue. We know that's how it works. We also know that they have discovered that if you read something encouraging and peaceful, 
you are likely to feel good and turn your phone off. But if you read something that makes you angry, you are likely to look for something else. That's the way they make the money. The news sites, different ways they make money out of sending us things they think will make us angry. We need to not listen to the voices that are trying to whip up anger. We mustn't listen to the voices of hatred, incitement, blame and revenge. We are remembering today 104 years, 105 years after the end of the First World War. Those of us who are familiar with why we have poppies, why we have Remembrance Sunday, those like me have looked into the story of my grandparents, we know that the whole day, the whole point was that there would never, ever be another war. That was what they wanted. They wanted to remind us, never, ever do this again. Have no more war. But I found this cartoon sent to me this week. The message of 100 years ago was no more war. And what is the message of 2023? We've settled for something rubbish. How do we bring peace? If we are commanded to be peacemakers, to bring in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the Prince of Peace, what do we do? We must not listen to the voices of hatred, incitement, and blame, but we trust and listen to the voices of restraint and of peace, the voices that value the people who are different, the voices that value the people that others are scapegoating, the voices that calm, the voices that bring unity, the voices that bring reconciliation, the voices that bring different communities together, the voices that bring about friendship, not mistrust. And if we are following, subscribing, voting for, listening to voices of division, we need to question that. We need to listen to the voices of humility, not arrogance. The voices that say this is complex and difficult and I haven't got an easy answer. Not the voices of I'll tell you an answer, it'll be easy, it'll be straightforward, we'll do exactly what I say and everything will work out fine because history has shown that those voices were always wrong. And we, listen, we look and listen to voices that are gentle and humble and are not ego-driven. We listen to voices that don't bring false reassurance but are real. That bring a realism about the issues we face. The solutions and problems and difficulties of the Middle East are complex. There is not a straightforward answer. And we listen to those who have a track record of truth, 
public and personal, and we do not listen to those who have a track record of deception or lying, even if we like what they are now saying. Because if a person has felt it convenient to lie in the past because the end justifies the mean, because they felt it convenient to lie to their wife or their partner, they found it convenient to lie to the nation before, we need to really weigh those voices, even if they are saying exactly what we want to hear. And we need to listen to the voices from known sources. When you're on the internet and you don't know who that's come from, you don't know, but there's a little advert by the side, I would be suspicious of everything that has adverts. Everything that is trying to make money and go to the sources of news that are not trying to make money out of us. The people you know, not those who are anonymous or unattributable. And Nehemiah has decided that the voices he's hearing are untrustworthy. And so he takes his anger to God. He says to God, you deal with it. Remember, God, what these guys have said and done. It is for God to deal with us. It is not for us to revenge. And there are things that we read and things that we've seen in the news repeatedly over the last few months that are overwhelming and they make us angry. And we follow the response that we see in the Bible. We see in Nehemiah, we see in Jeremiah, we see it in David, we see it in all uh, uh, the Psalms. We take the anger to God. And we pour out our complaint and we put it in his hands and we say, you deal with it, God, because I am not the judge. And it's not mine to avenge and it's not mine to attack. It is mine to be merciful and gracious. And so the wall was completed. And we have this verse. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid. Why were they afraid? Had there been violence? Had there been fighting? No, none at all. But they lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. A different way of doing things, not of aggression, not of force, not of power, not of manipulation, not of untruth, not of lying, but of simple obedience to God. So we're going to share in communion, and to do that, I want to lead us in some thoughts and questions. So here are four questions for us to ponder. What is the anger that we need to take to God? It may be an anger with a person, a relationship, a family member, a colleague, a friend, a neighbor, and it's chewing us up, and we want to lash out. We want to hurt, but we need to bring it to God and say, Lord, you know how I feel. You know what they've done, and feel free to voice difficult things in prayer, and you'll find that as you do that, you'll feel better, and you'll change. So the first question is, what is the anger we need to take to God? The second is, what are the voices of anger that we need to ignore? 
Maybe it's time to watch the news less. Maybe it's time to treat certain voices or leaders, Christian or unchristian, with much more skepticism. And where have we lost sight of love? Where is it that God would say, I want you to start to pray for your enemy, to bless your enemy, to do good to your enemy, to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile, to win them over? How can our words, real and online, build peace?